Welcome everyone to the BXO podcast, The Exit, where we focus on growth, preparedness, and transition. Bullet list of what that specific task is. The podcast focuses on areas that are challenging for privately held and family owned businesses, where you'll hear directly from business owners, as well as some of the top advisors in the country. What are the absolute musts be done? And then look, we, we find the person that can do those So sit back and listen to a wonderful podcast on information specific to your needs and helping you unlock the value within your business. Welcome to The Exit. All right, well, welcome everybody. My name is Brett Deering, uh, founder of uh, passionately known BXO, the Business Owners Exchange, and I am extremely excited to talk with our uh, guest podcast speaker, Susan Schoenfeld, a good friend of mine, um, you know, we've been working together uh, for over, I, I want to say about three years now, and have just been able to admire what she's been doing with multi, multi-generational wealth uh, and some of the issues that business owner families have been dealing with, uh, uh, obviously owning businesses and also having family members be a part of the business. And so I'd like to welcome Susan today to our podcast. Welcome, Susan. Thank you, Brett. I'm delighted to be with you today. Uh, delighted as well. Just to give you everybody a little bit of background about Susan. Susan is a JD in taxation. She is a CPA, MBA, and also the CEO and founder of Wealth Legacy Advisors, LLC. Uh, award-winning thought leader, uh, really focusing on legacy for family owner, family-owned businesses uh, and for multi-generational families. Uh, governance, stewardship, as well as succession and philanthropy. So, uh, you know, welcome, Susan. This is, for me, an exciting opportunity to have a discussion with you as we've seen so much disruption uh, with the pandemic and COVID-19 to a lot of families, a lot of families that are business owners, and would just love to hear kind of what you're hearing from some of those families as you're having these kind of detailed discussions. Well, thank you. Yes, the the issues as a result of COVID are um, are really bringing to the forefront the the deep seated issues that keep families of wealth up at night. The families who own businesses or the families who have had a liquidity event and are now sitting on liquid assets. The 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 main issue that I hear the absolute most from wealthy families is how do I raise my children in an atmosphere of wealth and still have them grow up to be productive, contributing members of society? How much do I give my kids and when, and how much do I tell them and when? And for the most part, the the scariest issue of all, and I hear this pretty universally, is as scary as it is for parents to have that dreaded sex talk with their kids, to talk about the birds and the right. bees. It's actually right. even more scary for parents to sit down and have that money talk with their kids, to talk to them about the family wealth and what it means to be a responsible steward of that family legacy, whether the wealth is inherited from a, a senior generation or created by um, the mom and pop who are sitting around the, um, the kitchen table at, at dinner. And, and what COVID has really brought to the forefront 
is the issue of of how do we have those conversations around that wealth when we may be sheltering in place with those very family members and and how do we how do we have a deep, meaningful conversation in the same space where we're having breakfast together every morning? Sure. Wow. So, I mean, so I guess the question then becomes, you know, so they're, they're having this, this real dilemma around what that looks like. Does that, does it, does it equate to a formal like meeting setting? Is it informal? And I guess like, how does that, how does that formulate? Well, what a family meeting looks like is is really as unique as each family itself. But when I like to think about what family meetings look like and, and why they're so important, I like to think about it in the, the traditional journalism, who, what, when, where, why, and how. And, and if you will, just indulge me and perhaps your, your listeners can indulge me a, a moment and just close your eyes and imagine your, um, your family of origin and growing up and thinking about the stories that your parents told you maybe about how they um, put their nose to the grindstone and worked really hard and created a family business or perhaps your ancestors, your grandparents, your great grandparents who maybe came here from another country and started a, a corner store that after lots of hard work became, I don't know, Whole Foods or, or something. Whatever it is, right. those, those stories are the fabric of who we are, how we define ourselves as not just a family, but as our place in society. And, and as all, all parents among us know, it, kids are constantly looking for that sense of identity. They're constantly asking bit about their family story. And so it's my belief that it's really incumbent upon us as um, whether you're the wealth creator or, or merely a steward of the wealth that was created before you to be able to fashion that story in a way that you want it repeated and not leave it to chance. Because if you don't have a hand in crafting that family story and family legacy, then it's going to happen without you. So why not be intentional about it? So when I think about the who, what, when, where, why, and how of family meetings, to me, the um, the why is is really the most important part, and and why it's so important is because as as I said, it's not it's not comfortable to discuss the wealth, or it's often not comfortable to discuss the wealth. But they know more than you realize. They know your children, your grandchildren. They know more than you realize. It is amazing to me how many times wealthy parents have said to me, my kids have no idea that we have wealth. And there was one time where I was sitting in this enormous home in Greenwich, Connecticut, where all the hedge fund billionaires live. And we're sitting in the library of this enormous home. And this man said to me, my kids have no idea that we're wealthy. And I just looked around and spread out my arms and I said really really and he said well you know we have the smallest house on the block so I said well that may be that you have the smallest house on the block but your son is 17 and he's going off to college next year and it 
it is it is entirely likely that the friends that he makes in college, or at least a good portion of the friends that he makes in college, may not be from Greenwich, Connecticut, and may not um, have such a grand smallest house on the block. And so you're really doing him a disservice by by not trusting him with having that conversation, because at the end of the day, that's the message that your kids are going to take away is my parents didn't trust me enough to sit down and have these conversations with me. And that's really why it's so important. I'm sure you're familiar with that expression, shirt sleeves to shirt sleeves in three generations. Well, what that really means, yeah, what that really means is generation one creates the wealth. So they started out in shirt sleeves, they worked really hard, and they created the wealth. The second generation grew up watching their parents working hard and, and perhaps having some deprivation and lack of their own and resolving that their own children shouldn't grow up with that kind of lack. So by the time you get to the third generation, the the grandchildren had not been exposed to that hard work, to that fire in the belly, and to that work ethic. And very often, the wealth is dissipated. And that third third generation is unfortunately back in short sleeves trying to create the wealth again for themselves. And that's why that's so, it's so important. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah, you know, it's, it's, uh, yeah, it's so interesting. I mean, to your point, you know, Susan, I work and working with business owners, um, you know, and doing a lot of the succession planning and tax planning, you know, and the thought process around, you know, having a successor, you know, to uh, the business, you know, it's interesting, you'd think that a lot of children of successful business owners would want to step into their, their mother or father's shoes and, and take on the business and take it to uh, another level and or vision. But, you know, what it seems like we're seeing as of late, and when I say as of late, over the course of the last four or five years, it seems like that next generation is kind of and maybe caught on in their mind where they're saying, I'm probably going to get the money uh, anyway, and so I'd rather not work as hard as my mother or my father and sacrifice as much as they have uh, in building this business, and so they decide that they don't want to take on the business. Is that something that you're seeing uh, you know, when having these discussions with families? Well, it's very interesting that you say that. Uh, uh, what I see is actually the mirror image of that, which is that mm. the senior generation just doesn't trust that their kids are ready to take on the family mm. business, whether it's their reluctance to give up control or their genuine belief that their children are not interested or not ready. But what I see in the reticence of the second generation not wanting to step in is more the the fear or concern about filling their parents' shoes and, and the acknowledgement that their parents believe they'll never be good enough and they'll never be ready. And no matter how hard they apply themselves and no matter how smart they are, their parents are never going to give up the reins of control because that's their identity. The corner office, the, um, the knowledge that when they say jump, everyone will say how high. And it's a real challenge in, in the family dynamics for the senior generation to give up that control and to acknowledge that, yes, perhaps their son or daughter is ready to take on that control. And that's, so that's an they, interesting dynamic. 
so then the, the, the million dollar question is, so how do you help them do that? <laughs> <laughs> well, that is the million dollar question. And that is, that is one of the big areas in which I work with families is helping to ready, not just the, the junior generation to take on the responsibility, but quite frankly, in helping the senior generation prepare for giving up those reins. And there are many different techniques for doing that. But the biggest one is is still sitting down and talking about it because at the end of the day, there is no nothing better than that having that conversation. Um, my my favorite quote on the issue of family communication comes from George Bernard Shaw who said the single biggest problem in communication is the illusion that it has taken place. And to me, that really <laughs> says it all because people think that they're conveying messages that they're not. And the message that the, especially the children of founders of a successful business take away is that they're never going to be good enough to, to fill their parents' shoes. And so, as I said, the, the message that I see is actually the mirror image of the the children, and, and I'm using the term children um, broadly to encompass even um, very senior um, next generation, but their belief that, um, or, or as you say, their reticence to take over and put in the hard work may in fact be a disguise for the recognition that their parents are never going to hand up the reins and are never going to uh, think they're ready. And even if nominally they do give up control, they're always going to be second guessing them and countermanding their, um, their, their commands and their, um, their business decisions. And so a lot of children of founders don't go into the family business because they know it's just not going to work out. And that's, that's really a, a, an unfortunate outcome that, that the, the founders would never have imagined. So it, it sounds like from your perspective, great insights, right? So it sounds like, you know, kind of this, the discussion in itself is in communication uh, is the foundation. And, and obviously within that communication, there's these planning discussions that are taking place uh, around transition and secession and some of the other key elements um, uh, of the family or key areas of the family, I guess, you know, the, from a logistics perspective, you know, how is that taking place today, um, you know, with family meetings um, where, you know, we're dealing with social distancing and, and obviously limited access to travel? Um, you know, how, how are our families having those meetings and what's the impact of those meetings? Great question. Now more than ever, it's important for families to have those kinds of conversations that matter. And technology certainly makes it possible, even as you say, in this era of social distancing, the limited capacity or appetite for travel, whether your family um, can travel, but what doesn't seem it's safe to do so, um, or the family is geographically dispersed and it's just not practical to gather together in one room or safe to gather together in one room. So families can use Zoom or WebEx or GoToMeeting or any other video conferencing platforms. But technology, as good as it is, is still not a substitute for gathering in that same room around a table and meeting face-to-face -face and looking each other in the eye 
Um, there are new technology issues to be planned around, along with the usual interpersonal dynamics challenges that we see in most family meetings. I would say my best advice is to try as best as you can to reproduce as much as possible the experience of a live meeting and take into account the, the behaviors of the family, the cultural expectations of that family who may not have met virtually before, whether that involves as a facilitator working before the meeting to address older family members or other family members who are less familiar or less comfortable with video technology, video conferencing technology, or addressing the security settings in your software, such as a waiting room feature and a password for the meeting and things like that to make sure that interlopers don't, um, don't spoil the intimacy of the meeting. Making sure that you update the software before the meeting to your latest version, and most importantly, make sure you test that software before the meeting. Um, making sure yeah. family members understand screen sharing, especially if you're sharing PowerPoints or you're talking about a family business discussion, whether it's a succession plan or it's a, a quarterly business meeting. Uh, making sure that you have a quiet space, that you don't have interruptions, that you've turned off your um, your your other technology, your phones and your other things that go beep in the night. Um, another thing, and, and, and to that point, actually, another big one is no multitasking. Um, and, and that goes not just for the meeting facilitator, but for everyone in the meeting. And that's a particularly difficult one in today's times where all of our meetings are on Zoom. And it is so easy to do multitasking and to look at your phone and check your email while you're in the meeting. But really, it's no different than being in an in-person face-to-face meeting when I ask everyone to silence or turn off their cell phones. And that's really a matter of, of respect. And that's a rule, a regular rule, if you will, for family meetings, but an even more critical rule for Zoom or, or other video conference family meetings. The, the issue of nope. having respect for the others at the meeting, things like not interrupting, not no sarcasm, no snide remarks, making eye contact with whomever is speaking. That's hard. <laughs> so just from a family dynamics perspective, I'm just thinking about my own family and, and uh, you know, sarcasm can be, uh, you know, that, that could be the, you know, the, 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 the uh, dinner for, for the day in some cases with those meetings. But, you know, you said something really interesting and, you know, it, it really kind of snuck past me at first, but you said the family and the facilitator. So in these scenarios where they're having these family meetings, Susan, you're acting as that, you're not acting, you are that facilitator to help orchestrate that discussion. Very much so, Brett. The, the notion of a facilitator for family meetings is something that, that families often resist initially because they say, well, why do I need a facilitator to sit down and talk to my family? And the answer is that this is a different kind of conversation than just gathering around the dinner table and asking, how was your day, dear? The, these are conversations that, that often get very emotional, that often involve a lot of upset, and that really require a 
um, if you will, a disinterested grown up in the room who can keep all the kids out of the sandbox so that you don't get into the mom and dad loved you better dynamic, but rather the dynamic is agreeing on a set of rules up front, like we're not going to interrupt, we're not going to roll our eyes, we're not going to make sarcastic remarks, we're not going to check our phone, um, we're not gonna storm out of the meeting, but we're going, and, and each family is going to create their own list of rules. And I, of course, have, have certain basic ones, like the ones I've mentioned, but each family tends to chime in the things that are unique in particular to their own family circumstance but having a third party in the room create or in the virtual room creates a a a different kind of dynamic it it creates a first of all before family meetings i sit down individually with every single stakeholder in the family and have individual meetings or interviews with each family member and try to get a sense of what is the elephant in the room? What is the thing that people aren't talking about? And sometimes it's very obvious. And other times it's it's much more subtle. And it turns out to be something completely different from what I was led to believe at the beginning of the engagement. And it leads for really rich and interesting conversations. And having that pre-planning opportunity results in a, an agenda that is is generally deceptively general. So at first glance, the meeting agenda might be something like the past, the present, and the future, um, which is something I, I did for a family meeting about six months ago. And, um, you know, and the family members looked at that agenda and said, after all of those conversations with us, that's the best you could come up with for, for the agenda. <laughs> And, and, you know, the interesting thing is at the end of the day, you know, my answer is, look, it's your meeting. If you're not happy with the agenda, we'll change the agenda. But this is just right. a jumping off point. And each one of those things has many, many sub bullet points beneath it that just don't appear on the agenda that you're looking at. Um, and and after I, I sort of explained that to them, they said, you know, OK, we'll stick with your agenda. And it turned out to be an extraordinary family meeting it was actually the best one. I think I've ever facilitated. At the end of the meeting, the um, the family all spontaneously engaged in a group hug, which was so heartwarming to me, um, and not something oh, that this great. family I think had ever really done before. It was really quite a, a touching, touching moment. So no, it's not so much about great. what's on the agenda, but rather what what went into it so so that's one element is the before the meeting the of course the during the meeting and having a facilitator to hold people to the rules and hold people to make sure everyone has a chance to participate and that matriarch and patriarch don't talk over the the younger members of family but really to ensure that there's multi-directional communication is very important and the other critical role for a facilitator in a family meeting is after the meeting to make a list of action points and next steps and assign a person to be re directly responsible for those next steps and to hold their feet to the fire so that at the follow-up meeting you actually have something to talk about so those are some roles that a facilitator takes you know that's interesting i mean this is you know so thinking about it you know just from a holistic perspective and, and understanding 
all the, the elements that go into having a proper functioning family meeting, I think a lot of times, uh, you know, families aren't even aware of that. You know, it's interesting just kind of, you know, looking at, um, you know, the next few minutes, I, I'd like to ask a couple of questions in regards to, you know, scenarios, right? Because um, with these family meetings, I'm sure, you know, there's two things that are always recurring in the conversations that I'm having with, you know, with some of the family owners, business owners that I'm working with. Uh, and they usually come around, uh, you know, they usually focus uh, around when another person is added to the family, i.e. Uh, some type of marriage facility and one of the children's are, 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 are now getting married. And so they want to make sure that they're, you know, being open to acceptance of that person coming in the family, but they also want to make sure that they're minimizing the risk uh, associated with the family business. And, you know, so I'd love to hear your thoughts on that. But the other component, too, is this this huge component around equality. Um, you know, there's two brothers that or, uh, you know, a brother and a sister that are either in a business and or receiving some type of uh, distribution of the business and trying to you know, stay on point with what equal means from a definition perspective by family for each of those uh, family members. And so what are your thoughts about that? I mean, I'd love to hear some feedback and what and how you go about helping, uh, you know, uh, families kind of work through a couple of those types of issues. Sure. Well, you, you've asked quite a few questions in, in that one question, so I'll try to respond. <laughs> I'll try to respond in order. Um, the first question is, really relates to new family members joining the family, whether by marriage or, or whatnot. And and I'll add, not just by marriage, but also new um, younger family members who are coming of age and do at what point do they join the family meeting and at what point do right. they have an equal vote in the family meeting and that really goes back to one of the issues we talked about earlier which is sort of the who what when where why and how of family meetings and so it, it really addresses the who question so who who should be in a family meeting who should participate and while the matriarch and patriarch the, the founders of the business the founders of the wealth certainly have a seat at the table. Um, I, I would respectfully submit that they should not be seated literally at the head of the table because they, um, that causes the family to, to, resort, to revert back to their patterns of just listening right. to what, made, what founders have to say, and it discourages right. that notion of multi-directional communication. So I like to either assign seats at the table or in an in-person meeting anyway, uh, assign seats at the table or to sit at the head of the table myself and ask business founders to, to not sit at the head of the table, perhaps to sit in the middle of the table. But of course on Zoom or other video conferencing, it's not so much about your physical location as it is really coaching them beforehand not to dominate the meeting and as a facilitator, to make a point of not allowing them to dominate the conversation. Um, sure. Most most people would say that their children or their adult children should attend the family meeting. Sometimes people will say that their grandchildren should attend the meeting. What I like to do, especially where there's a family business involved, is to encourage even minor 
to attend the meeting, you know, as long as they're not little, little kids, but to, if, if they're young teenagers, to attend the meeting as non-voting and, and perhaps even non-verbal members, but so that they can begin to learn the culture of the family business and to begin to learn and to to really absorb just how much a part of them this family business is. The, the notion of the spouses of your children is, is an interesting one. And many business founders say to me that, um, you know, the spouses of my children are the outlaws rather than the in-laws. Right. And, they, and their right. place is not at the family meeting. And my response to them is, well, that may be, but they are the parents of your grandchildren. So if you exclude them from the conversations about the family value system, then perhaps you're doing yourself a disservice. The, Very interesting. Yeah, that said, the, the notion of protecting the family's wealth from, um, from those dreaded outlaws is one that, that families are constantly struggling with. And many families insist that their children enter into prenuptial agreements before they get married. And I'm not going to turn this into a conversation of the legalities of how to make sure a prenup will stand up in court. But what I would want to point out to your listeners is to be sure that if a prenup is part of your family culture and part of something that you're likely to insist on when your children get married, my one rule of thumb is to recommend that you make that expectation clear before, even before your kids reach dating age, so that it's not personal. And so that your kids can honestly say to their spouse or their spouse-to-be that regardless of who I married, whether it is someone less wealthy than my family, or even someone dramatically more wealthy than my family. Prenups are part of my family culture, and it is something that we were going to insist on no matter who I marry. My second piece of advice is the timing of having that conversation to make sure that the prenup is fully negotiated and fully signed long before the wedding day. Because what you don't, and and in fact, even before the wedding invitations go out, because you don't want the prenup to be set aside because of some allegation of of undue undue influence. Sure. Well, I mean, and I I think, you know, that, that, that is so first and foremost that's great um you know feedback i mean even just the fact of having that discussion earlier on as an expectation uh for you know a child of the family um also helps them to prepare themselves around the discussion and how they want to bring that up so that that in itself is very helpful what are your thoughts about you know kind of the equitable debate right i mean that's something that i hear frequently when it comes to business owners and how do you approach that situation that well, that's a real challenge when there's a family business, and that's what actually that's why I call it the equal versus equitable debate. And my main point there is that fair doesn't always mean equal, and equal doesn't always mean equitable. So if you've got one child who attends junior college and the other goes to med school, or you've got one child who lives in in New York City and you've got another child who lives. Um, maybe in the Midwest somewhere where the standard of living is, is less expensive, or you've got one child who becomes a member of the clergy or an inner city school teacher or a nonprofit employee, and your other child becomes a, a brain surgeon or a, um, 
a famous sports figure or celebrity who is very likely doesn't need or want your wealth and in fact is doing creditor protection planning themselves, then you've got a recipe where it is appropriate to treat your kids unequally, even if that is the fair thing to do. Uh, and even if the parents may say, in, in a vacuum, I, I want to treat my kids equally. If you've got one child active in the family business and one who's not, one way you can deal with that is to create non-voting shares for the child not active in the business. Um, but that, and, and some parents may think that's fair, but as, as I'm sure you've seen, and I've certainly seen, what that often creates is resentment on the part of the, the child who is involved in the family business, that their hard work and sweat of their brow is enriching their sibling. And so, you know, it, it, the answer might be life insurance or buying out the, um, the non-active family member or, or some other solution that I'm sure you, you've encountered better solutions than, than even those. But there are lots of ways that you can address the issue of of not having all of your offspring involved in the family business and trying to equalize that. Um, but at the end of the day, what you're trying to avoid is that dreaded situation, um, perhaps long after you're gone, where one of your children turns to the other and said, mom or dad loved you better because they left you the family business or they encouraged you differently or they, I don't know, fill in the blank. It is, um, it is ubiquitous. And it is one of those things that try as parents will. It, it is something that's just bound to happen. So the key is to try to communicate with your children if you're doing something unequally, but you're doing it for good and valid reasons and not create that kind of situation where they're just going to not know why you did something and assume the worst. Sure. Yeah, you know, it's interesting. It seems like this area is an area that I see more and more of where there is no planning, right? Um, you know, even if, you know, there's a, the, there's a tremendous amount of planning on the day-to-day -day and even on a, you know, projected basis over a two-year, three-year basis around the growth of the business, um, that, you know, owners, uh, family owners take, you know, pride in. Um, but it seems like this is one of those areas where, you know, it might be a potential blind spot. And so from the perspective of just the commonality and, um, you know, kind of the, the thought process that you've given us, I think is very, very helpful to our listeners that are business owners, that are family, uh, generational, multi-generational family business owners that are looking for how do I engage this conversation or how do I even begin uh, to put some kind of structure to this. I mean, this conversation has been very, very helpful. We just have a couple of minutes left. And so I would like to ask one quick question, which is if I was a listener, you know, if I'm a listener now listening to you, Susan, and I decide, you know, what is the one key thing that I should know uh, as a family, multi-generational uh, family business owner, what's the one thing that I should be thinking about or what is the one thing that I should be doing? Oh my goodness, the one thing, um, it, it all comes back down to communication. That is, sure. it's the scariest thing to do and it is the hardest thing to do, but far and away, it is the most important thing to do. If you don't explain to your children and your grandchildren why you've 
set things up the way you have, then you're leaving it up to their imagination to guess. And chances are they're going to come to the wrong conclusion and it's going to lead to family enmity. It is so important to have those conversations. You know, look, while you're alive, um, you as the founder of the family business and the creator of the family wealth, you are the referee. You are the one who keeps peace. And after you're gone, that referee is gone. So why not take the opportunity while you're still around to craft and fashion the family story that you want to be repeated and, and um, carried on by your family as part of its mission, vision, and values long after you're gone? Why wouldn't you want the family to understand the value system that led to your founding that business in the first place and explaining your motives for how, how and why you set things up the way that you, you have? Well, Susan Schoenfeld, I, I just want to say we appreciate the opportunity to speak with you. Um, this is really good insights. And, uh, you know, I'm sure that a lot of our listeners may want to reach out to you and, and have a, a more personal conversation with you. How do they go about doing that? What's the best way to, to reach you? Well, the best way to reach me is um, by email. So my email address is my last name, Schoenfeld, S-C-H-O-E-N-F-E-L-D, at wlallc.com, or if that's too hard, just go to my website, which is wlallc.com, as in Wealth Legacy Advisors, llc.com, and there's a contact button right on the page, and feel free to reach out to me that way. Um, I've actually written an article on family office succession planning, and if any of your listeners would like a copy of that article, they can um, ask me for that in the email, and I'm more than happy to have a conversation with any of your listeners about any of these issues or, or any other issues of family business matters, family dynamics matters. No, that's great. And and for our listeners, uh, if you if you're thinking about having this discussion, that I would I would uh, passionately say, please reach out to Susan. I've I've had a chance to uh, work with her, and I've seen some of the families that Susan has worked with, and uh, you know nothing but rave reviews. Obviously, uh, you know a lot of award-winning thought leadership um, has gone out. Uh, that Susan has been sharing, uh, and definitely a participant and an investor in her profession. And so with that being said, I'd like to thank you, Susan. This has been a great, uh, great opportunity to speak with you, and we look forward to having you back. Well, thank you so much for having me. This was a lot of fun, Brett, and I really enjoyed having, having these conversations. Awesome. Well, everyone, we appreciate your time. Until next time, have a great day, and we'll talk to you soon. Thanks again, everyone. 